Welcome to episode 281 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right. You can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash podcast to get your free electrolytes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 281 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hello there, my friend. How are you today, Cynthia? It's been a while. Yeah, I am. I'm doing well because it's it's like hard for me to say this, but my kids are all going to be in high school as of next week. Oh wow, they're going back to school. <laughs> Two different schools, but yeah, we're we're in that mode of back to school shopping and supply purchases and new computers, and it's just hard to believe the summer is effectively over for them. So this is actually a mind blown moment for me. So when I was in high school, I was like the only person I brought a laptop to class. Like nobody had laptops. 
Do all the kids use laptops now? Well, it's interesting. So my youngest is going to a magnet high school and they require laptops. So we had to purchase one for him. And my other son who goes to the local public high school, they are supplied with Chromebooks, which is kind of like a laptop. And that's what they utilize. But I'm actually giving my oldest son my Apple because I'm going to get a new laptop. And so he'll have that that he can use for school. But yeah, it depends on where you're in school, like the STEM-focused magnet schools and like the school where my younger son is going, they require them because they want them to be able to work from anywhere. Not from the perspective of 24-7 like a lot of adults do, but they allow them to have a lot of freedom during the course of their day. And so they like them tethered, not tethered to an outlet that they can just, you know, get up and use their laptop anywhere, outside, inside, in the lounges, et cetera. It's just so funny to think about how things have changed because literally, literally I was the only person and I brought a laptop to, I had to get permission to do it and they were fine, but it was because I, I was like, it's so much more efficient for me to type my notes during a lecture than write them because I ended up retyping them anyways. I'll really date myself here. When I went to college, there were three of us in college at the same time. So, and back then computers were super expensive, like prohibitively expensive And so I had a word processor. So I'm sure there are probably some listeners who remember what that was, but I had a word processor, not even a computer. (laughs) I didn't have a computer until I went to graduate school. And I think it was even like a hand-me-down like iMac that my mom had. So yeah, fast facts. Things have been changing. Absolutely. So I have an interesting experience to share with listeners. I actually, how long have you had an aura ring, Cynthia? A little more than a year. might be about a year and a half. Okay. So I've had mine about two years. So I can verify on it that I got sick for the first time last week with the exception of COVID. I don't really count COVID. I haven't gotten sick in at least two years and I don't remember getting sick like before my aura ring. Like, So I think it's probably been about three years of getting sick non-COVID. I had a fever and chills and it's so funny. I was so excited, not excited, but that night that it hit me, I was like, I can't wait to wake up and look at my aura ring and see if it knows that I'm sick. <laughs> I did. And it my score was awful and it knew. That's when I was able to look back through the data and see if I'd had a fever at all in the past two years. But what's interesting is the very next day, I was completely back to normal HRV-wise, readiness score-wise. And I've actually been better since before getting sick, but I have been so tired. It's like I'm experiencing the the COVID fatigue that people talk about, but I didn't have COVID because I tested. I didn't have COVID this time around. Some things I've noticed during this experience to share with listeners is one, for people who take my serapeptase, I'm kind of blown away because my memories of being sick are congestion and you know runny nose and not being able to breathe. And interestingly, I haven't had barely any of that. Like I know it's all there, but the serapeptase just keeps me so clear. So I've been so, so grateful for that. And then secondly, I mean, it's a little bit disconcerting that I'm still really tired. Like normally I, like I've been canceling everything, calls, going out with friends. Normally I do business calls when I'm running errands and I haven't been doing any of those because I've been like, I can't run an errand and talk on the phone at the same time. So I've been scratching my head about what to do. So I was talking with my friend, James Clement, who wrote a book called The Switch. And actually Morgan Levine 
talks about him in her book as well, who I interviewed and who you are interviewing in an upcoming episode. She was amazing. So I've been talking to him about what to do. And he keeps saying like that I should high dose NMN. And Cynthia, do you take NR or NMN? I don't. And admittedly, and I'll be fully transparent, I don't feel like I know enough about the better brands for those products. I think that's really what it comes down to because I know there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the supplement industry. And for full disclosure, I usually just lean on Melanie's recommendations. If it's something I don't know a lot about, I'm like, what would Melanie do? (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Well, especially with NR and and NMN. So for listeners who are not familiar, there's something called NAD in our body. And Peter Atia, did you listen to his episode? He recently did an episode with a guest expert in NAD. It's on my list, but it, it, it's like I really have to set aside the time. Like I've been listening to the Huberman and Atia podcast, and since it's like more than two hours, it's been like two gym workouts, and I'm still, I still am not done with it. <laughs> we talked about this, so you listen to podcasts while working out. I do, I do, or books. It depends on my mood, but lately, it's been I've been getting back to podcasting. I have to do music if I'm at the gym. I listen at night usually to podcasts, but he did do a recent dive into NAD. So in any case, NAD, it's kind of like how I keep talking about magnesium being the master mineral in the body. NAD is basically the master coenzyme in the body, literally involved in everything. So it's in all of the cells. And there's some theories out there and talking to James, this is his theory that, especially with like COVID, that post-COVID fatigue and like long COVID might be due to depleted NAD in the body. And we see with age that NAD actually goes down as well. And so a lot of scientists also think that a lot of aging effects are due to depleted NAD. So keeping your NAD topped up is super important. But you can't take NAD as a supplement, but you can take the precursors, which are NMN and NR. And there's been so much debate about which version is better. And like you just said, Cynthia, especially with NAD and NR, a lot of just sketchiness in that industry. So I've been historically taking both and kind of experimenting. And I think I can announce this. I announced before that we were going to make an NMN at Avalon X. And then we couldn't because it's in the gray zone with the FDA. But things are changing. (laughs) So I probably will be releasing an NMN upcoming sort of soon, which I am so thrilled about. So needless to say, I was talking with James and his direct quote to me was, do not underestimate the effect of high dosing NMN. What he actually does, he has a lab. He made his name by doing work on the blood work of supercentenarians. And now he does a lot of anti-aging lab work. And he's literally testing like NMN and NAD and stuff like that in his lab all the time. So he's been helping me figure out a dosing schedule. So I started high dosing the NMN that I'm taking right now two nights ago. And I actually did start feeling a little bit better. And today's the first day I feel like this is not wearing me out right now to talk. (laughs) And I took so much NMN last night. And I think it's so important that I actually, over the next four days, I said you can't take NAD as a supplement, but you can as an IV or as an intramuscular injection. So right after this, I'm going to go get an NAD injection, and then I have two IVs scheduled, and then another injection. I mean, I can't keep being sick this long. This is not, (laughs) I'm like not down with this. That was a lot, but basically listeners, I think NAD is so, so important. Stay tuned because hopefully 
I'll be releasing my own NMN soon. So for updates on that, definitely get on the email list. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. Avalonx.us is also where the serapeptase is and the magnesium and the coupon code Melanie Avalon gets you 10% off. But I just share all of that because, I mean, I love these supplements, but getting sick has made me realize it's when you're sick that you realize what's important to you. So that was a long spiel. But you got sick sort of recently, right? With laryngitis. When I came back from Europe, I was convinced I must have had COVID because I spent two days in bed. And then I was like, if I don't have COVID, I must have flu. And I kept coming up negative for both. But I started a whole regimen of, you know, high dose vitamin A, vitamin A, vitamin D, a slew of other things that thankfully my physician friends called in for me. And I felt better usually within a day and a half. But my aura ring the day before I started feeling poorly was already telling me something was brewing and it stayed abnormal for like four or five days. And then it went back to normal. So I don't, I don't know what I had, but I do, I do think for all of us, you know, we lean into the narrative that, Oh, it has to be COVID. And I just think you can get an aberrant virus. There are other things. (laughs) Sorry. I'm so glad you said that. I didn't mean to interrupt because so many people I've talked to, they're like, Oh, it's probably COVID. I'm like, well, I had COVID. I tested this time around. It was negative. And they're like, oh, but it's probably still COVID. I'm like, guys, there are other viruses besides COVID. And unfortunately, that's the mentality is, oh, if you get sick now, you can't just have like a common cold virus. What happened to all the other coronaviruses? Like it's COVID-19 because there are a lot of other coronaviruses. Right. And certainly, you know, we went from we had three, you know, we flew from Budapest to Amsterdam, ran through an airport. I'm not kidding, ran, sprinted to our flight to Boston, Boston to our home. And so I was like, who knows what I got exposed to, even though, you know, travel to me is generally pretty enjoyable. But, you know, your immune function can be impacted by a lot of things. And certainly, you know, six hours ahead, you know, the the net impact of time differences and things you get exposed to while you're traveling and the stress of traveling, let's be honest, it's not, it's not stress-free. I'm, I'm mentally gearing up for three tasks, three trips I have back to back in September into early October. And I was telling my husband, like in between the LA and Scottsdale trip, I think I'm home for two days and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to be like really hunkered down (laughs) as an introvert in between those big trips. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. And not every viral illness is, the pandemic bug. It could very well be just a latent, benign summer virus that people used to never think twice about. I'm so glad you said that because it's like everything's COVID now. Right. And it doesn't have to be. And that's actually like I I had, you know, in between my trip and then I had a week at home and then I went to a business trip in Austin and I felt like I had to tell every single person I saw that I tested four times for COVID only because I wanted to be able to demonstrate I really didn't have it, <laughs> not because I thought I had it, but it's it's now become an expectation that people are hypersensitive, hyper aware to, you know, what is now an endemic virus. And so, you know, the joke is amongst my ER medicine friends, the only people that don't have COVID are the ones who haven't tested, meaning you probably have had it. You may just have had a really mild case. You may not have tested Anyway, I don't want to dive down that rabbit hole, but the point is not every not every viral illness is is COVID or flu for that matter. Yeah, exactly. So 
definitely been an experience. And I'm really excited to see, again, so the high-dose NMN is helping, but I'm really excited to see over these next four days with the NAD if that just, you know, gets rid of the fatigue. Although I've heard that the IV can be a very unpleasant experience. So we'll see if I, we'll see if I make it through that. Oh, and last thing, I had a call with Aura Rain yesterday. Listeners, I might have a code soon. Finally, (laughs) finally. So stay tuned for that. People ask me for a code like every day of my life. I I actually have a, an Aura Ring code. With your name? How did they sign it? So it's, it's, People get money off and they get six months of free service. What? Like a Cynthia Thurlow code? I don't even know. I mean, we'll, we'll include it in the show notes, but they made it just for me. Whoa. I have been trying so hard. I had the call yesterday and they were like, well, we'll fix that for you. Treasure that. They do not give those out easily. My listeners know I've been trying. <laughs> Well, because I tag them constantly. I'm always like showing my data. And then, you know, I talk about Aura Ring probably as much as you do. And I tell everyone, it's like my favorite form of technology that really has been helpful for me determining what I need to do to, for me, it's really been, my REM sleep was always good. My deep sleep was the one that needed work. And so I'm constantly working on that (laughs) constantly. Yeah. Wow. The show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 281. All right. Shall we jump into everything for today? Absolutely. So this is from Knowles. Hi, Melanie and Cynthia. I'm a 65-year-old woman, 110 pounds, and I've been fasting since August of 2021. I'm doing it for the health benefits. So when I read something like the issues raised by Dr. Sarah Ballantyne below, I don't know what to think. She sounds legit, and so do the studies. I'm doing fasting for health reasons, so need to know the scoop. Please address this soon. Thanks, and I love your show. I hope you can shed more light on this and other recent studies. Thanks for all the information. And here's what she says. Myth-busting intermittent fasting. Most studies in humans have shown that intermittent fasting doesn't provide any additional benefit compared to other diets with metabolic and cardiovascular benefits attributable solely to the weight loss during the study. In addition, the most common way of IFing by skipping breakfast results in higher inflammatory responses and increases in measured insulin resistance after lunch. Studies also show that routinely skipping breakfast increases the risk of type 2 diabetes by a shocking 55%, increases the risk of cardiovascular disease by 21%, and increases all-cause mortality by 32%. All in all, there's far more science pointing to the benefits of breakfast and eating dinner on the early side to support better sleep. And then she lists out two different blog posts. One is called Intermittent Fasting, Secret to Weight Loss or Dangerous Fad. One is called Is Breakfast the Most Important Meal of the Day? New Science Has Answers. And then there are links to two of her podcast episodes Episode 386, Intermittent Fasting, and Episode 381 is Breakfast, the Most Important Meal of the Day. And that is on her, what podcast is that? The Paleo Mom. So I have so many thoughts here. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, so to start things off, when her podcast episode 381 published is Breakfast, the Most Important Meal of the Day came out, or it might have been three, one of those that she links. People were asking about it in my Facebook group. And she actually co-hosts the Paleo View, or she at least she used to with my good friend, Stacey Toth. 
So this came up in the group. I listened to the podcast episode and I did a deep dive into what she talked about. And so I'm going to talk about all that here. And all of this is not to like argue or, you know, try to discredit or disprove what Dr. Valentine is saying. I just think she brings up a lot of good topics and I learned a lot listening and diving into what she was referring to. And then I also did a deep, deep dive into one of the specific studies that she talks about because her blog post is Breakfast, the Most Important Meal of the Day, New Science Has Answers. That is an analysis of a 2017 study called Impact of Breakfast Skipping Compared with Dinner Skipping on Regulation of Energy Balance and Metabolic Risk. So I was reading that study and it was actually a really fascinating study. So I'd love to talk about it anyways. So I'm just going to talk about all that and <laughs> and then people can, uh, we can see where we go from there. So maybe I'll start with that blog post about the 2017 study. So basically in one of her emails, I'm going to read what she says about the study and then I'll read what the study actually said. So she says that a 2017 study used a randomized crossover design to evaluate skipping breakfast versus skipping dinner compared to the standard three meals per day. Time-restricted feeding, either skipping breakfast or skipping dinner, resulted in slightly higher energy expenditure for the day. And while skipping breakfast but not skipping dinner increased fat oxidation, it came at the expense of higher inflammatory responses a whopping 54% increase in the postprandial HOMA index, meaning increased insulin resistance, and higher blood sugar and insulin levels after lunch. And then she says a recent study of how intermittent fasting affects insulin sensitivity showed that the feeding window didn't really matter. What did matter was having the first meal before 8.30 a.m. That's Dr. Ballantyne's words. So the actual study, what they did was they looked at, well, first of all, a problem I have with the study, it was... It was very short. So people basically did like a day of skipping dinner and a control day and a day of skipping breakfast with a washout period. And it was only a day of each of these. And so I think that right there is a problem because it doesn't give people time to acclimate to whatever IF pattern they're doing because we know it can take the hormones a little bit of time to sort of regulate to a new rhythm. So That's just a little bit problematic starting things off. But that said, there were a lot of good findings in the study. So the participants ate the same similar macronutrients throughout the days. So one of the biggest things, the biggest takeaway, at least for me, and and Dr. Sarah Ballantyne mentioned this, was those that skipped breakfast. So when they ate dinner, they actually burned more fat. So what's a huge takeaway from the study is that the participants who skipped breakfast, so basically they were having a later eating window, they not only did they burn more fat than those that skipped dinner, they burned fat when the other group was burning carbs. So basically the people who ate all throughout the day were burning carbs more, and it was the exact same for the people who skipped dinner. So the people who were eating earlier burned the same amount of carbs essentially as those that were eating throughout the day compared to those that skipped breakfast and only ate dinner, it's like flipped. They basically burned fat all day. Not all day, but they burned a lot of fat. So they were fat burning for the majority of the day compared to the other group that wasn't. And I just think that that is huge. And so what's interesting is she mentions how the HOMA IR at lunch was 
worse for those that skipped breakfast. And what HOMA IR can tell us is it's, like she mentioned, a measure of insulin and glucose that can give us a picture of insulin resistance. So it was worse for those who skipped breakfast after lunch. One of the problems (laughs) about this setup is they didn't test HOMA IR all throughout the day. They only tested one data point, which, well, it was a few different times, but it was basically amount of time surrounding the lunch meal. And what's important to note about that is that's testing the HOMA IR at a different timeline for the two setups. So like if you really wanted to make it controlled, I think is I think you would have needed to have tested HOMA IR so that it would match the amount of time into the eating window for both of the the two arms, the breakfast skippers and the dinner skippers. I don't know if that's quite making sense, but basically just like looking at one snapshot, I don't think gives a full picture of the entirety of everything, especially when fasting insulin sensitivity, 24-hour glycemia and glucose variability and 24-hour insulin secretion were all similar for all of them. So basically all of that was really similar, but when they looked at this one time point, they found a difference. So I don't know that that's actually a full picture of what's going on. And then something fascinating from the study, and I find it interesting that Dr. Ballantyne didn't mention this at all when she talked about the study, even though later in her email, because what we read was from her email, later in her email, she talks about other studies looking at the role of cortisol and how fasting might have a negative effect on people's cortisol levels and people's stress levels. So this study actually found that those who skipped breakfast had a better stress response. So while the the cortisol and the 24-hour cortisol profile um, was similar between all the groups, those that skipped breakfast, I will quote, they had, it says overall HRV. So we were talking earlier about aura ring. HRV is your heart rate variability, and it can be used as a marker of your body's stress levels. And higher HRV is basically a better stress response. So the study says that overall HRV, heart rate variability, was higher on the breakfast skipping day than on the dinner skipping day. And it says that the findings of the study argue against a higher sympathetic tone and suggest improved autonomic regulation with breakfast skipping. So the sympathetic part of the nervous system is basically like our fight or flight version of our nervous system. And the parasympathetic is the more relaxing, calming part of our nervous system. So this study found that for those who skip breakfast, they had a better stress response. They're, you know, less of the sympathetic, more of the parasympathetic and improved autonomic regulation. So they found that skipping breakfast was better for their stress levels, which is the, well, Dr. Valentine didn't even mention that from the study. And then it contradicts what she says a little bit later about another study on cortisol. So the study makes this case and Dr. Valentine makes this case that maybe breakfast skipping is leading to metabolic inflexibility because of that HOMA IR score. But what's confusing to me, and I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Cynthia, is it's like, why would we assume metabolic inflexibility based on this one HOMA IR score taken at one point when overall, when we look at the entire day, those that skip breakfast were burning more fat? Like it, like it just doesn't make sense to me. If they're burning more fat for a substantial amount of time, 
clearly it's a different message than metabolic inflexibility. So I find it interesting that that's a conclusion that's drawn. Interestingly, what the study concluded, their final, final conclusion was that, and this is also interesting because you can make a lot of conclusions from this study. And this is what I want listeners to understand the way these studies are handled. And it's not even, because we'll talk about how there'll be a study and then it gets interpreted in the media or interpreted by bloggers or doctors or scientists or influencers. And you can put whatever spin on it you want. But even the study itself, they often put whatever spin on it they want. Like they focus on what they want to focus on. So everything I just told you, you could have concluded so many things. You could have concluded skipping breakfast is better for your stress levels. You could have concluded skipping dinner decreases fat burning. Like, like there's a lot of things you could have concluded, but what did they concluded? A causal role of breakfast skipping for the development of obesity is not supported by the present data. So they basically concluded a negative. So rather than saying skipping breakfast leads to more fat burning, they concluded that skipping breakfast does not encourage obesity. And it's a small thing, but it's just it, it just really shows, I think, what the aim can be with certain studies. So that was my analysis of that study. Honestly, reading it, I was like, this makes me want to skip breakfast. <laughs> like, like you'll burn more fat. Oh, I left out the inflammatory response potential. I am so sorry. There's another aspect of the study where they looked at the immune response. And Dr. Valentine talks about this. And so it's interesting about here what they did is they looked at the, um, again, look, they looked around lunch and they looked at the blood of the participants and they didn't look at the inflammatory response of the blood right then. So it wasn't like they looked at them eating the meal and then they looked for levels of inflammatory markers like IL-6. So they put into the blood either LPS, which is lipopolysaccharide, which is basically a byproduct of gut bacteria that our body registers as a toxin, or they put in hemagglutinin, which is a glycoprotein that causes an immune response in red blood cells. It's kind of like the whole lectin type thing. And they saw how the blood reacted. So they didn't look at the inflammatory response of the blood right then. They took the blood, they put in something that the immune system that would react to, and then they tested to see how the blood reacted. And they did find that those who skipped breakfast had a more exaggerated inflammatory response when they put in basically a toxin or something that aggravates the blood into the blood. And I don't know enough about immunology to really speak more at length on that other than to say that I'm not really sure what's going on there and I'm not really sure what the implications are. They concluded that it was maybe because the participants who skipped breakfast were burning more fat when they ate, so they had higher levels of fat in their blood and that that could exacerbate the immune response to LPS and hemagglutinin. So I don't know. Again, it's a thing where I would set it up differently, where I would have that response tested so that it's being tested on the early eaters and the late eaters equivalently based on how long they've been fasted or how long they've been eating. That was in there as well. 
that was so much. And I also have thoughts about her other blog posts, but I'm going to stop talking for a little bit. Cynthia, do you have thoughts? Hi, friends. We are so honored to be sponsored in part today by NutriSense. You guys hear us talk about continuous glucose monitors, aka CGMs, all the time on this show. And in particular, we love NutriSense, and here is why. NutriSense not only provides a 24-7 moving picture of your glucose values, they also offer a unique opportunity for self-discovery. So imagine this. You have a meal, and then you notice a spike in your glucose levels. So you think, hmm, that didn't go well. But here's the magic. Tomorrow, you can make a simple change. You can swap whatever you were eating for something else. Now you have real-time data to evaluate the impact. Maybe instead of that fruit, you have some vegetables. Maybe instead of that oatmeal, you have some yogurt. Maybe instead of that steak, you have some fruit. The continuous feedback loop that you can get with a NutriSense CGM empowers you to make quick, informed iterations with your meals. Maybe the change results in a completely normal glucose level, or maybe it's still a little bit high, but significantly better. Armed with this knowledge, you can refine your choices further, rapidly steering your glucose values back to the normal range. Without a continuous glucose monitor, honestly, you're just guessing and assuming that what you're doing is working. And when you go test your blood sugar levels at the doctor, that's just a snapshot of that one moment in time. It's not telling you what actually was happening throughout the day all the time. What makes NutriSense truly transformative is its ability to create lasting habits and intrinsic motivation. So instead of relying on generic advice from professionals or online sources or us, you have personalized real-time data from your own body. When you see the direct impact of your choices, it will resonate on a whole new level. This newfound awareness becomes the driving force, making it easier than ever to stay motivated and committed to your health journey. I promise you friends, it's like opening your eyes to the secret to lasting change because it gives you this empowering knowledge that you just didn't have before. So if you're looking to take charge of your health, gain real insights into your body and make sustainable, positive changes, NutriSense is your ultimate partner. Join them and us on this journey of discovery and unlock your full health potential. Get started today at NutriSense.com slash podcast and receive a $30 discount off of your first month, which includes two CGM sensors, free shipping and professional nutritionist support. That's nutrisense.com slash IF podcast for a $30 discount off your first month with two CGM sensors, free shipping and professional nutritionist support, which by the way, I get a lot of feedback on just how helpful that nutritionist support is. It's so easy. You can talk to them in real time in the app and they can really help you make sense of all the data that you receive from your continuous glucose monitor. NutriSense.com slash IF podcast. And I am just so grateful to NutriSense for helping support today's show. I think this really speaks to what happens in the media and many other, you know, well-intended, I have to believe this is a well-intended email and blog post that were written. It's under the presumption that most people don't know how to read research. And it's under the presumption that we aren't going to question what she believes was the takeaway, key takeaways from this research that was done. And so this is why Melanie and I are, are very committed to really taking the time to thoughtfully look through the research and to be able to say, you know, this actually isn't the case. If you really look at the research, you really look at the variables, there are so many things that impact, you know, the HPA, the hypothalamus pituitary access, the stress response in the body. A lot of that could have absolutely nothing to do with meal timing. And so I, I feel fervently and strongly that this is one of many reasons why there's so much fear mongering about fasting and really 
we would not be here as a species if it wasn't something that was very aligned with ancestral health perspectives. But when you start layering in the stresses of a modern day lifestyle, like many of us experience, you know, stress going to work and stress with kids and stress with getting sick and all these other things, adding in additional layers of stress on top of fasting may make it a less than ideal circumstantial choice. But I don't think that the key tenants from that email and from that study were extrapolated in a way that's particularly helpful. In fact, I think it contributes to the fear-mongering mantra and message that we see all over social media from health influencers, et cetera. And Melanie did a really, really nice job kind of diving into the research and looking at what did it actually really show. And so even when I do little IG, you know, lives or I do really short videos, I always say, you know, look at the research, you know, was it statistically significant? You know, what were they, what was the endpoint they were looking for? So really getting at least somewhat knowledgeable about what to be looking for and to question. And really that's what science is doing is, is forcing us to question and to consider, do we need to look at this differently? But it has always been my experience that fasting and when we look at the bulk of the population here in the United States as one example, it's anywhere from 8 to 9% of the population is metabolically healthy. So hello, that's most everyone is not metabolically healthy. Eating less often is not going to hurt you. <laughs> I think that's the big thing to stress. Like the big takeaway is who benefits from us eating all day long? What industry benefits? You know, I, I the other thing that I like to look at, and Melanie, I'm not sure if you actually looked at this. But I'm always like, who funded the study? Who funded the research that we're looking at to see if there's any biases? Because I think that can also be very, very impactful. But this is, you know, trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, one of those old sayings that my grandmother used to say that, you know, you really have to dig a bit deeper and understand that even people with research backgrounds can actually cherry pick data. It happens super commonly. And this is one of many reasons why I think it's important to get savvy or at least familiarized with basic research tenants and to also, if you see something that is outside the norm of how you would normally think about something, like be humble enough to say, you know, maybe there's something here I haven't looked at, but I looked at this as well. And I have to agree with Melanie that there's nothing to support the key takeaways that Dr. Ballantyne has in that article or in those emails. And I think it's unfortunate because many years ago, I think I did actually follow her, but I, I got to a point where I, I had to unsubscribe. But I think on a lot of levels, I appreciate when our listeners bring these things to our attention so that we can address them proactively and, and say, you know, sometimes there's going to be a time when we might say, hey, we may need to rethink our thought process on a particular area versus saying, you know, I, I still feel pretty confident that eating less frequently and not eating large boluses of food throughout the day is ultimately going to improve metabolic flexibility, is going to keep our insulin levels lower, is going to improve those HOMA IR scores that you were referring to. And, you know, it, it just goes to show that even well-meaning people can put out cherry-picked data, which is what I, when I first read this, that was my, my visceral response. It's really interesting because I understand that that HOMA IR, when they measured it around lunch, seemed worse on the breakfast skippers. But I don't know how you draw the conclusion that they're becoming metabolically inflexible when they started burning fat and the control group didn't and the dinner skippers didn't. And then interestingly, so 
I mentioned that it concluded that skipping breakfast was better for your stress. So later on, Dr. Ballantyne talks about how IF might negatively affect cortisol levels. She references a 2019 study where she says early time restricted feeding altered the dineural patterns in cortisol, morning cortisol was elevated, and evening cortisol was lowered. And then she says this implies that this is not an appropriate dietary strategy for anyone with unmanaged chronic stress. So this really confuses me because last time I checked, the cortisol pattern that we wanted was higher cortisol. Like the natural cortisol rhythm is higher cortisol in the morning, lower at night. So the study found that that fasting led to higher cortisol in the morning and lower at night. So I'm, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that? Like, that's what I think we would want to see. Yeah. The circadian biology, if you look, you actually get a spike in cortisol about 30 minutes after awakening and, and you want to see it ebb and flow throughout the day, but it follows a very commonly in a healthy person, follows a common distribution and higher in the morning, it ebbs and flows throughout the afternoon and then it's lower in the evening. And you wouldn't want your cortisol to be the opposite. If it was low in the morning, you would be dragging. You could barely get out of bed. And if it's high at night, then you're wide awake and you can't fall asleep and you can't relax. And so, you know, circadian biology is something that I have really gotten to know very well. And so that doesn't seem at all aligned with the way things should ideally be, meaning we want to see a vibrant cortisol response in the morning. That's what gets us up out of bed. It suppresses melatonin, gets us moving, And then we want cortisol to be lower in the evening when we're getting ready to go to bed, some of us earlier than later, and we want to see a nice vibrant response with melatonin. So that doesn't make any sense to me. And maybe there's something I'm missing. I've read it so many times. I remember when I heard it in the podcast and she said that, and I was so confused because I was like, well, what do you want to see then? Like, (laughs) I just don't understand. Well, and sometimes I think some of these individuals, and maybe it's not even Dr. Ballantyne who wrote that, maybe it was an assistant or someone on her team. But the assumption is made is that most people don't know basic science. And so if you understand like very basic science, you would say, hmm, that doesn't make sense to me because the normal distribution of cortisol, and I look at these labs almost every day, that's what you want to see. I mean, it's when it's dysregulated, when you've got hypothalamus pituitary dysregulation, meaning your brain and your pituitary gland and your cortisol or the adrenal axis, so it's HPA axis, when that axis is disrupted, that's when you'll see an abnormal distribution of cortisol throughout the day and into the evening. And so I have to agree with you. Although it's interesting when you think about stress, like if someone is going through a divorce, they're, you know, doing having like they've lost their job or they're going through a contentious move you know, that might be the time not to add more stress to the body, even if it's a beneficial hormetic stress. But in most instances, you know, people can kind of take their foot off the accelerator and maybe they're doing 12 hours of digestive rest. But I still don't understand how you could say that it's not beneficial, honestly. When we're looking at the degree of metabolic ill health we have here in the United States, it's almost, I I actually... I'm getting more bold on social media. I was saying on Twitter, something along the lines like, if you're a healthcare provider and you're, you know, not advising your patients to check their blood sugars or to recommend a glucometer or a CGM, and you know, I'm getting a little off off on a tangent, we're really doing them a disservice. And so I think the same thing, if you're not telling every single patient to go 12 hours without eating, that's criminal, absolutely criminal. That ties in a, a little bit to one of the podcast episodes that was 
referenced, she did bring up a lot of topics, which I think are good topics for discussion anyways. So there are things we would be talking about anyways. The one that that made me think of was she believes that the benefits of intermittent fasting are often basically all due to calorie restriction and that that fasting is harder than calorie restriction. And I have a, a lot of thoughts surrounding that. So one is, so even if the benefits, because I know this is like an age old debate or as long as it can be an age old debate, which is as long as IF has been a colloquial idea, but um, even if the benefits of IF are just due to calorie restriction, which I do not believe they are. I believe they activate similar pathways as calorie restriction, but that you can get the benefits without calorie restriction. But even if the benefits are just due to calorie restriction and people are just accidentally eating less by doing IF, I think it's very hard to get people to do calorie restriction normally. So if people can easily, quote, unintentionally do calorie restriction because they're fasting, I see that as a win. I don't have any issue with that. Well, and I think it's also this very reductionistic thinking when people say, oh, the only benefits are that you've reduced your calories. And I'm like, no, that's actually not correct. And so it's an opportunity to really help educate people that there's so much more to the benefits of fasting that people are unaware of. I I think people come to it because they want to change body composition or lose weight. But if it were simply about the calories, then we wouldn't have all this other vibrant research that suggests that there's a lot of benefits that maybe aren't apparent, you know, reduction in inflammation, autophagy upregulation, all these other things that people sometimes lose sight of. And I think it also speaks to the fact that we have conditioned our patients to believe that they need to be eating all day, like all day long and eating snacks and many meals. And the reality of the situation is even people who are thin have plenty of stored food in their bodies, you know, stored fat that they can access if they're fat adapted. And so there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm, I'm trying to restrain myself because I could go off on a t- many different tangents about the fear mongering and the cherry picking of data that seems to be really prevalent, much more so now than ever before. That's why I thought about this part of it, because how you were saying that doctors should be telling people to go a certain amount of time without eating, but there's often this response of, it requires calorie restriction or it's not sustainable and it's just better to eat all day. And I just, I don't see that. And so in that podcast, she talks about how she speaks specifically about ADF, alternate day fasting, and how it's more difficult than calorie restriction. So interestingly, I don't think for me, it wouldn't be more difficult than calorie restriction, but I do find ADF, it does not appeal to me. I I think it'd be too difficult for me, not something that I would like. That said, there are so many studies that have found that not to be the case. So I'll put links in the show notes. But for example, one called alternate day fasting improves physiological and molecular markers of aging and healthy non-obese humans. That one, they saw no dropouts in six months for people doing ADF. They saw two dropouts in two months for people who were not doing ADF compared to one dropout in three months of ADF. And then there's one called short-term modified alternate day fasting, a novel dietary strategy for weight loss and cardio protection in obese adults. They found that the compliance on ADF was very high, 86%. And it was even higher because often in studies, they'll they'll do like an enforced part of it where they basically give the people the meals. And then there's like the self-done version. And they actually found that people were more compliant when they were doing it themselves, which is pretty cool. 
And then there's one called alternate day fasting for weight loss and normal weight and overweight subjects, a randomized control trial. And they found that people doing ADF had adherence rates of 98% and that their hunger did not change. And they actually, the longer they did ADF, they felt more satisfied and, and more full. ADF is probably hard for a lot of people. Like I said, I don't want to do it, but there's been a lot of studies where people find it very easy to adhere to. So I wouldn't make, I don't know, I wouldn't make a blanket statement about it being something that's not practical or not implementable. And then she does have a lot of takeaways about breakfast studies and this claim that the majority of studies show the benefits of breakfast. And I have dived deep into breakfast studies, especially when I was writing What, When, Wine. And what Cynthia was talking about earlier with funding, this is where it is shocking the amount of studies that are funded by the breakfast cereal industry. Like it's just shocking. And so (laughs) there's actually a 2013 meta-analysis. And up until that point, their conclusion was, quote, a majority of pro-breakfast studies feature biased interpretations, misleading language, improper citations, and inappropriate terminology. So basically, there's a a huge bias in the literature. On top of that, there's the healthy user bias. That's the idea that the people who skip breakfast are often the type of people that are engaging in other healthy habits because we've been told for so long that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Sorry, I said people who skip breakfast. People who eat breakfast tend to you know, smoke less, drink less, eat more fiber, eat more micronutrients, be physically active. That can be a, a misleading thing for all of the studies. And then if you actually look at the studies on skipping breakfast, that's just not what it shows. A lot of the studies show that skipping breakfast, people do not overcompensate. They usually end up eating less throughout the day overall when they skip breakfast they don't make up for skipping an entire meal, even if they eat like a little bit more at lunch. And I'll put a link in the show notes to my blog post that I did on early versus late night eating. And that was more in the context of fasting. But when I actually looked into the literature on everything, and I tried to be as unbiased as possible, and I walked away thinking that the best time to eat, it's not what I do, by the way. (laughs) It's not like late at night like I do. But it did seem to be between like, four to seven, like basically like later afternoon to early evening while the sun is still up. I tried my hardest to be as unbiased as possible. And I looked at so many studies. Well, I think you're also a unicorn. Like I, I, I lovingly say that, like, I think that, you know, it works for you. You're metabolically flexible, you're insulin sensitive, but the average metabolically inflexible individual would probably struggle with like when I think about late night eating when it's dark outside it's not aligned with the way our bodies are designed to thrive for the average person in that subsect it could be detrimental if it was something they did all the time but this is when bioindividuality really rules and this is you know certainly a degree of experimentation I know when I used to work crazy shifts in the hospital like 11 a.m to 11 p.m more often than not you would get a you know a dinner break in the evening and you would just eat because you know, if you didn't eat then you weren't going to be able to eat later. But I I think it's, you know, really leaning into what works for each one of us. And the research is helpful. That's one thing I want to respond as a clinician. Research is helpful to guide suggestions and recommendations, but ultimately it's the clinician or the N of one or the patient or the individual really determining what works for them and is in their best interest. I think that's really important. So if you, if we get hung up on 
and I'm just speaking very in very general terms, research is helpful. Research confirms many things that we do clinically. Research can also just leave us with more questions like, oh, we need more research done on this area. You know, we know that women, there's not enough research done on women as one example, because there have been a lot of fears about subjecting women to research that are of childbearing ages for many concerns about the potential teratogenic effects, meaning anything that could potentially happen to their fertility or an unborn child. But I, I think there's now a push and a demand for not just being exclusive and looking at just at men or menopausal women, but looking at everyone to get a really good representation of what what the research holds for. I mean, that's my feeling. Like I'm always looking at it kind of objectively and saying, yes, research is helpful. It can confirm what we need or it can cause us to look at different variables that are impacting fasting or metabolic health. But I always think it's important to to determine for each one of us what is working or what is not working. I could not agree more. I think bio individuality is so, so key. And like, I am a late night person. I'm according to Dr. Bruce, I'm a dolphin. I have cortisol spikes probably late at night. And so eating late at night really brings down that cortisol for me. It's just really interesting because I honestly think if we could get rid of all of the biases of society and we didn't have this narrative about breakfast. And I think if people just objectively sat down and looked at the hormonal profiles of people naturally, like what would they conclude? I don't think you would conclude that you should eat breakfast because once you wake up, cortisol spikes, adrenaline spikes, you have hormones that are releasing fuel from your body. Like it's not a time where your body is asking for fuel. Ghrelin, the hunger hormone, raises a little bit later, not right when you wake up. I don't know. I just, when I did a deep dive into the hormonal profile, it was really, really interesting. But then again, there are people that love breakfast and that's what their body wants. And that's where, like you said, bioindividuality is is key. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like this was the anti-fear-mongering episode. I'm also glad you brought that up about the role of women in studies. And one another reason I loved interviewing Morgan Levine, I find that it's the female scientists that are the ones talking about this. Like she talks about in her book, you know, some of the problems with anti-aging research and how women often historically haven't been as included in the studies. And there's definitely a need for more women in studies. Well, and I think it's it's interesting, even when I was writing my book and I've got so many references that are housed on my website because it would have taken up, I don't know, 20 or 30 pages in the book. There just isn't enough. And we can't compare ourselves to lab animals and we can't compare ourselves to primates. You know, we really do need good researchers really looking at all these variables. And to be honest, you know, anecdotally, you know, I'm I'm starting to see emerging trends that are coming up. And actually I'm doing a webinar for the Dutch company. So this is a Precision Analyticals Dutch test is a test that I use quite frequently, and especially in programs like Holistic Blueprint, which we're enrolling for in September. And they had asked me to do a very slanted discussion on metabolic health and fasting and nutrition, which of course I'm happy to do. And I identified for them, I'm starting to see this triad of women. They are over-fasting, over-restricting, over-exercising, and those are the women I worry about the most in terms of adding in more fasting. You know, it's it's the extremes that we as women don't weather quite as much. And it's not to suggest women can't work hard and work out hard and doesn't mean they cannot fast. But if we're over-restricting everything in our diet, we're, I know, we're 
anti-carb, we're not eating enough protein, we're eating the wrong types of fats, we're exercising seven days a week doing CrossFit. And sorry to pick on CrossFit, I'm just trying to think of a, a very intense form of exercise without recovery. And then on top of that, you're doing two 24-hour fasts a week. Guess what? That's not going to balance your hormones. That's not going to put you in an advantageous position. And so I, I think that as we are asking and demanding for more research, we're going to see some interesting results that come out of that. And and I do think, and I, I think Ben Bickman was recently talking about suppression of mTOR and how that can impact, I hope I'm not misspeaking, I think he was talking about ovar- ovarian follicle follicle health. You know, you really start to think about the fact of, you know, why I always say, like, if you're a healthy woman under the age of 35, don't over-restrict your food and don't over-fast. And so, really, like, that's the kind of research we need to see. You know, what's the net impact of hormetic stress on different stages of life? Not just, you know, women still at peak fertile years, but, you know, in perimenopause and menopause, I think that would be really interesting and certainly very telling. And I'm glad that there are researchers like Dr. Levine who are advocating for women and, you know, certainly doing the research. They're in the thick of things and hopeful that that will yield more helpful information to guide recommendations and clinical decision-making and N of one decision-making moving forward. I'm glad there are people like you, like clinicians, you know, working with patients and looking at all of the research and advocating, you know, so strongly for women in all of this. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, so that was a deep dive. That was a one question IF podcast episode, but we will be back next week with lots of questions. Yes, yes, yes. I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> when I was reading, it took, it took me a long time to read through the study. I was like, this is going to be a long episode. So for listeners, there will be a full transcript, which I know will be very helpful because that was a deep dive and links to everything that we talked about because we talked about a lot of things in the show notes. Those are at ifpodcast.com slash episode 281. You can submit your own questions by directly emailing questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. And lastly, you can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. I think that is all the things great deep dive into that question. And and thank you, you know, listeners, keep them coming. You know, it's always enjoyable when Melanie and I kind of dive into the research and, and look at different ways of making observations and certainly helping you, you know, wade through a lot of misinformation that's out there. And there is certainly plenty of it. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, this was absolutely wonderful. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.